Hiya, welcome to another episode of Zero Ambitions, a podcast about sustainability and the built environment. I'm here with Lloyd for the intro today. Hi, Lloyd. Hi there. It's a little bit of a different one. We're putting out a Passive House Plus revisited episode produced by Lloyd and myself as a a Christmas two-parter because it was a really interesting discussion of an article and it went on for two and a half hours. We've edited it down to a mere two hours and we're splitting it out over two episodes, which because there were there were five of us on this episode, we had a lot of fun and we didn't want to edit it down any further. So we thought we'd spread it out over two days when folk might want a little bit of accompaniment for doing the washing up or taking care of the Christmas labour. I mean, I, I appreciate these podcasts like that. So this was one you asked for specifically, Lloyd, that you were interested in. Well, when I read the article in Passive House Plus, I think it was the Wood for the Tree article. When I finished that year, I concluded that this was the most important article that I'd read all year, that here they were making a position. And you've got to realize that sort of building out of wood, mass timber is hot. It's big. Everybody's into it. And the running thesis of a couple of years ago was that because wood is sequestering carbon, the more wood, the merrier. The more you use, great. The more carbon we're we're sequestering, the trees go, they suck the carbon again. And it was never quite true. And the article made really puts on paper the fact that, you know, trees are special and we can't just chop them down willy-nilly and turn them all into buildings. We have to be careful and we have to think of the bigger picture. And I just found it a wonderful discussion. As you know, I wanted all of these ones that I was involved with to be short and to be scripted. And here I was sitting for two and a half hours enchanted with what was going on. My wife upstairs can only hear one side of the conversation. And she said, you must have been really interested because you really shut up a lot (laughs) because usually I just talk and talk and talk. (laughs) So um, yes, and I was fascinated and they were fascinating. And I just, I have never sat and talked for two and a half hours like that in my life. So um, (laughs) I found it really exciting. Oh man, they were it was a lot of fun. Right. So we'll we'll wrap this up. We'll keep it brief. There are a lot of references to things in the course of the two episodes, like studies, articles. Now, I've captured as many as I can. If there's any that we've missed that aren't in the show notes that you want to find out about, uh, drop us an email and we'll find them. We'll also be posting links to these things because there are a few uh, visual references. We'll drop them into the LinkedIn podcast's LinkedIn channel. So they are easily accessible. Again, they will be added to the show notes. So I think you should have everything. I mean, we start out, it is a structured free-for-all, such as the, the contradiction. It's supposedly based around the article, but I mean, we start out waiting for Jeff, where we're just having a chat about the, the concepts of using less. I mean, sort of from an embodied carbon perspective, but actually much broader than that. And then we go all the way to AI and its impact on the construction industry. It is myself, Jeff, Lloyd, Lenny Antonelli, formerly deputy editor of Passive House Plus, and now a jobbing freelancer working across the green building sector. He does all sorts of interesting things. He's worth a follow. And Andy Simmons, friend of the show, CEO of the AECB, who was with Huda El Sharif on our Thermal Comfort episode. So you are privy to friends meeting up for the first time in ages. So you get a bit of that chat, particularly while we're waiting for Jeff. But where you think it might just be a bit of waffle. 
it does lead into stuff quite quickly. Anyway, and this will be out over two episodes. So uh, you'll get the next one in your podcast feed tomorrow. Yeah, I think that's it. Thank you for joining us. And one last thing before you go, Merry Christmas, if you're yeah. in this on Christmas Day. Anything else, Lloyd? Anything else you can think of? Nope, nope. I, um, you know, I had some trouble putting together the notes for this, but like I think that between the article and what I did, we'll be just fine. Lots to talk about. Okay, good, good. Uh, I've been, I mean, I've been doing some more work for the AACB over the last few months, looking at some of the issues. Kind of that was kind of work that was kind of an extension of this article in a way. So I've been kind of immersed in this world again of building materials and sustainability and ecology. So I'm hoping that my mind is up to up to speed with the subject matter. So Jeff will join us at some point. Oh, He's oh just good. dealing with the kids. He's still in the middle of deadline hell. Mm. So you know it well, Lenny. In fact, you will as well, Lloyd. You know, you've been a. I mean, we all have history. Were you a print journalist ever, Lloyd? Or were you strictly blogging? Um, no, I went straight in and went to print after blogging. I've been doing a few for Azure magazine. And now I'm, but uh, no, never really a print journalist. In fact, I never use the word journalist. It's oh, no, Andy. I'm fashionably late, sorry. It's okay. No problem. Well, uh, Jeff is going to beat you on that score, hands down, I'm afraid. Uh, school pickup problems. Uh, Something like, yeah. I spoke to him about an hour ago and he was on his way to pick up. So one can only assume that it's it's related to that. Are you in your beautiful backyard? Yeah. I'm at the end of the backyard, yeah. In yes. a rapid railway carriage, which was yes. once full of uh, cattle in the 1800s. <laughs> no, I saw, I remember, I, I I had a beer in your backyard there and it was quite Oh, lovely. yes. Yeah. No, it's still looking good. Leaves still on. Yeah. Is that what happened at the ATB conferences? Do people just go to Andy's backyard after for a piss up or is that what's one? <laughs> do not. I do think about that, actually. I should have come. Nice. Should've... It would be nice to hang out. I'm getting a bit antisocial in my old age. It's terrible. Mm. Mm. I find the older I get, the less I can be asked. <laughs> They're just leaving should the house. Fighting that? Should we fight that or should we not? Should we just let go with it? I think you have to pick your battles. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, that's good advice. Yeah. I have to go to the home conference, ironically, <laughs> tomorrow in the Excel Center. It's the, you know, the home version of Future Build. Mm. Oh. When I was last in London, I actually went, I think I went down to that Excel uh, Grand Designs, has a Grand Designs oh, yeah. thing. Which was bizarre and silly, but I thought, oh, a home show. I used to work home shows when I was in the prefab business, and I really wanted to see how they do them in the UK, and it was fascinating. <laughs> so so but, what did you learn from your experience? Well, I was actually very impressed that they give a big section of free booths to uh, green products, and they really did that significantly it's... expensive real estate that oh, wow. would give, give away to that. And, you know, I used to be a vice president of the Architecture Soci Association here that's both the regulator and the promoter, sort of REBA and the registration board rolled into one. And I was always promoting architects to go out and do something, like go to home shows, and none of them would. They thought it was beneath them. And went to that one, and there was a whole row of them. There were 20 architects there, you know, trying to sell directly to the public like that. And I thought it was fantastic. Those are the two main differences I found. More understanding of sustainable stuff in a regular show and architects actually trying to do something. Mm. Well, that's interesting. Well, of course, what we'll be talking about is trying to get architects to do less, isn't it? Which is going to be a... Yes, exactly. <laughs>
Well, yeah, that should be the name of the game nowadays, if anything. Well, it's, it is one of the conundrums that's come out of all of these articles and discussions and, and Lloyd's book is, you know, do you sell your services as saying we will help you, you know, find another way to satisfy what you think you want by not building your this, that or the other or building it smaller? Or do you, or do you just sort of feed that in guerrilla style? I had a really interesting chat. Uh, the other day with an architect, a U.S. architect, I think. He, you might, I don't know if you know her, Lloyd. What was her name? She's from, the, from, she's from the Center for Zero Waste Design or something by that name. Anyway, she was telling me, it was a, she had a great example of this. She said that she knows an engineer who was asked by a university to design a new net zero carbon lecture hall or building with lecture hall, halls, right? Mm. So the engineer uh, said to the university you know, kind of looked at it, looked at what they wanted, looked at the problem they had, which was that their other lecture halls were full and they needed more capacity. And he said, well, if you just have lectures before 11 a.m. in this other building, you know, and make a few tweaks to, to your lecture schedule, you actually won't need a building at all. And the university said, no, no, we have this funder and he wants his name on a new net zero carbon building. And so we need to build the building. So the engineer went and designed the building and they got all this plaudits for building a sustainable building that they didn't need. Oh, no, I thought that was going to be a success story. No, it wasn't a success story. (laughs) Well, I'm trying to find another image for you here um, of an architect in Australia, Jennifer Crawford, who took that pyramid that I sent this morning, the Just Do Less pyramid where you go down. And she sort of said, well, here's the problem. This is how we make money by doing more. Mm. And so she actually inverted her whole practice to a consultancy where she uh, shows people how to either live in their existing house or do the minimal addition. And she doesn't even act as the architect anymore. She just acts as a first pay me by the hour to teach you how to use less stuff. Lenny, that could be one of your interviewees Mm. for the coming article. Lenny and I are looking out for uh, architects' practices of the future. Now, we, we ran a webinar last week by Raft, Retrofit Action for Tomorrow. They work with a lot of, with, they work with schools and the way they work, I would say satisfies the criteria of a, of a practice that's pivoting to all the things we will end up talking about in this, uh, in this podcast. Um, yeah, would you would you send yeah. me send on our details, Lloyd? Be- uh, so um, the article I wrote last year before I was canned was um, "Can an architect survive in a world where we have to build less?" and and here's her pyramid. Here's the problem. The problem is uh, architects make money by building new, and what's good for the planet is to build nothing. Okay, and, will- and uh, she's make- built a career out of it. An alternative practice called Our New Home Coach. She calls herself a home coach. Oh. It's it's uncanny the number of parallels between this user experience strategy for website building and like retrofit or uh, minimal impact building. Like it is always just do less. Like what we often find, like Alex and I, when we're doing product or website strategy for clients, like do you even need a website? <laughs> <laughs> like do you need an, an Instagram account? Like what are you selling? You just need yeah, pictures because yeah. if do, doing case, less is quite hard to get to, isn't yeah. it? Because it's just oh. easy just to do what everyone else is doing. Well, it's, it's like it rec- the um, Cal Newport philosophy a little bit. Do you read you read any of Cal Newport's books? He was like digital minimalism or uh, deep work. I think his latest book was a world without email, where he's like he says, "Yeah, you don't need you don't need email." <laughs> you know, it's kind of like I mean, it's kind of maybe an extreme, but it's a, it's an interesting way of thinking, and it's good to start. It's good to start. It's good, it's good to reduce back to zero almost, and then build back up the things you genuinely need, as opposed to 
having everything and figuring out how to use it, you know? I'm not sure whether I personally, where I sit in all of this, because when it comes to building kind of like, you know, proper energy consuming buildings, big, big things with insulation stuff, I probably can get on board with Jennifer, definitely can actually get on board with Jennifer's, the, the example you just showed there. But when it comes to personally creating things, you know, I have got a reasonable sized garden, but I am filling it with structures. And I've just <laughs> persuaded my wife that I can put another structure up. So in a few days leave, I've got, I'm going to be building something. I can't stop myself. I just love <laughs> building things. It won't be heated, you know. Yeah, but you build them out of junk. Oh, well, they, yes. Well, local sawmill, re- uh, salvage timber. Yes. Some old stone that I've paid probably more than I should from the salvage yard. Yeah. Could, yeah. Can so. you turn the camera around and show them just for a moment? Because it's neat stuff. And Dan, you're recording all of this. Might oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Slice this in. Oh, good. I can go to that, Dan. Yeah. Um, so there's a couple of diagrams that are going to be quite pivotal in this conversation. I guess we could word picture them, couldn't we? Don't know where these these upside down pyramids come from, Lloyd. Have you did you pick them up from somewhere, or did you draw them for the book? The upside down pyramid I originally got from was in World Green uh, Building Council's Carbon Upfront book. Oh yes, and then it was picked up again by. Oh, fuck, his name just slipped out of my head right there. Sorry for that swearing, too, there. Um, But for the Institute of Structural Engineers, I mentioned his name, Will Arnold. Will Arnold of Institute for Structural Engineers, who's just brilliant, who put in the use less stuff. The pyramid originally came from sort of I, I, PPE, protective stuff, you know, an order, a hierarchy of what you do. And mm. it's been used a lot. But I really like I really like Will Arnold's with the use less stuff in there. And um, Andy, think, since yeah. you said it, you liked mm. my book. I did get actually, yeah. I um, I just get up ridiculously early, and uh, even worse this morning. So saw your email, and I read it from page forty-eight. I think you pointed me at yes, and then read through to the end. I did like it. Good. It's a very useful book, actually. And I've read a lot of books, and sometimes just saying the same old, same old. But no, I think it's it's useful, and saying. You know, some of the things that have been said for a while, but in a, in a way that I get a bit easier because I forget some of this stuff. You know, it's like our article then. <laughs> when we start talking about our article, it's like, oh, yeah, what did we say? What did we <laughs> mean? Well, I thought you meant that. Oh, no, you meant that. Oh, you know. Anyway, so I found the way you put the information across sort of got into my head nice and comfortably. I got it quite easily. Yeah. It was it's designed because nobody out there understands what embodied carbon actually is except the arc even most architects don't get it right. Mm-hmm. And so it was trying to bring the concept home to the general public that you know it's in your iPhone, it's in your car, it's in everything, not just buildings. Mm-hmm. And the whole end of the book like it says right on the cover of the book it says right under the title how a life of just enough offers a way out of the climate crisis. It's about mm. basically using less stuff so and, hopefully and it'll just work. enough yeah but just enough doesn't mean you don't have enough like just exactly. enough is satis- satisfactory is not uh, a negative no like, satiation is i mean that's a word normally associated with vampires i suppose but well i uh, actually have a chapter sati- i can't pronounce the word satiety <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole chapter, satiety or enoughness. Satiety, yeah. Satiety, satiety. I have trouble with it. I'm gonna. Yeah. I should have used another word. I'll look it up in the back. I'm gonna get. I'm gonna get screwed every time I do an interview. There's a nice book by an Irish writer, kind of a nature writer, called "Enough Is Plenty," which is a phrase I think kind of. I know of it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. 
I think what's interesting about these concepts is doing less. It doesn't mean simple either. As well we know from the retrofit world, it's really fucking complicated to do it well. You've still got, in terms of architecture or engineering design or building design, you've got plenty of billable hours. In terms of the the, the work <laughs> that people actually do, shitloads of billable hours. It's all there. Like There's money in it. And increasingly, as carbon becomes priced, that's going to be more valuable time because it will reduce costs at the other end. But it's hard to conceive of those things unless you have some pressure on you. You're right, Jeff. Hi, Jeff. Yeah. Hi, how, how's everyone? Sorry about that. Sorry, I'm late, but it's okay. No you can all, um, you can stop bickering, dry your eyes. <laughs> here now. You've been running. You've been running. I, was running. I was just running around like a blue arse fly. Uh, my wife uh, did her ankle in, and um, so I've been unable to be as negligent as a parent as I normally would be. Yeah. yeah. Can't hide. Nowhere to hide. Mm. Yeah, the performance gap in my children as well, you know, honestly, like, you know, they're suboptimal. Um, <laughs> I bet I bet whilst you've been running around in the back of your mind, you're working through, you know, what was that definition of sufficiency we'll be talking about? And no. What, no. No, 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 no. There's nothing going on in my brain, I tell you. Like Yeah. Anyhow, can I go get more coffee and then we'll start? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds good. Coffee. Excellent. What um, time is it for Lloyd then? Did he say Well, it's nine o'clock or ten o'clock for him? I can't remember the, the clock's switch. Where is about. he? Um, in, in Toronto, isn't he? Isn't he yeah. in Toronto? Toronto. Not Toronto. Yeah. Toronto. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Uh, all right, Lloyd, do you want to, after that long rambling beginning, do you want to you lead us into the conversation? Okay. I'm really excited to be here today because two years ago, I read an article in Passive House Plus magazine, which was... Uh, for me, one of the most influential and important articles that I've read in a long time. And I actually wrote an article on Treehugger, which I worked for there, calling it the most important thing I read all that year in 2021. And it was called Seeing the Wood for the Trees, Placing Ecology at the Heart of Construction. And I've got here, here with us are the two authors, Andy Simmons and Lenny Antonelli, and the publisher of Pacifist Plus, of course, Jeff Colley. So it's like a really, could be a really interesting discussion here to talk about this. And the problem, the issue at large is that everybody says mass timber is the future. We've got to build everything out of wood. We've got to do all this with wood, but it's a complicated issue. And it's how we do it that is as important as what we do. Uh, the article started with a discussion of the biodiversity emergency, and could you go, could you explain exactly what you meant by that? Do you want to start, Lenny? Or... Yeah, I'm happy to. Yeah, I suppose we hear a lot about the climate emergency, and you know, in parallel to that, we also have a biodiversity crisis, which is is maybe not as measurable in sort of one parameter, like like global temperature or, 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 you know, parts of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. But, you know, we've had populations of wild animal species have declined something like 70% since just since 1970. I think something like 3% of global land ecosystems are still intact. And there's about 40,000 animal species around the world at, at, at risk of extinction now. And I think something like 40% of the world's plants are in a similar, similar position. So, kind of all across the globe, really, especially in the last 50 years, we've seen a massive 
massive decline of nature of, of the living of the living world and it's it's now at a point where you know we're kind of at a point where we're, we're, we're in danger of going past the point of no return if we don't start to to both stop things and then and then start to restore nature on a, on a grand scale can you explain the relationship here because like the people who are in favor of using wood and mass timber and that say that they're not causing uh, or contributing to the biodiversity crisis uh, because they're using sustainably harvested wood and they're replanting it and particularly in European forests that none of them are original they've been doing this for a thousand years how does the biodiversity crisis relate to the discussions that we're going to go on about with mass timber? It's a good question. One of the one of my roles in this article was to keep zooming out. I mean, I do have a a deep practical relationship for many years with wood and making a living in design and so on. But I do like zooming out, and that's where my curiosity is uh, sort of most strong. I suppose you know the things that keep us awake at the ACB, or me particularly, is uh, this the fact that we are in an overshoot situation there's a strong link between that and our use of fossil fuels this is kind of stating the obvious but it in a way it does need to be to be stated we have a very large population which is very closely correlated to our increased use of fossil fuels now hubbard's peak you know peak oil which i think a lot of people now go oh that was so yesterday we don't do peak oil anymore but actually it's still there yes. it's just it's just a taller peak and it's just displaced in time a bit because we found some other stuff to to wring a bit more oil and gas out of but it's still there and so we are going to be going down the other side of of, of hubbard's peak and you know what does that mean for this population this very high population teetering on the on the, on the sort of uh you know, predicated on using fossil fuels. So that's pretty scary, and there's no way around that. The other thing that's really interesting is um, the way humans have been changing the surface of the planet for not just since using fossil fuels, but for thousands of years, you know, and there's increasing evidence to show that the scale of change, even with very small human populations on the surface of the planet, has affected the climate over many thousands of years. There is even a growing uh, sort of uh, arguments that the sort of cycle of glacial periods and, uh, and interglacial periods, that sort of cycle, uh, heating up, cooling down, has been broken potentially by that sort of effect, the human effect on the climate, and potentially has created the Holocene, you know, this stable period of climate which we've thrived in and now of course we're about to do the opposite and change that for for the worse so that's i think this is really important stuff to to hold in our heads when we're trying to tackle those questions you're you're asking there and so this basically the way we see it is we are in a predicament and a predicament means it's that we're not it's not a problem to be solved we can't solve the problem you know the ecological overshoot we can't solve climate change we have to react to what's going on. And I think that's, this is quite hard to, to describe, but it's, I think for years I was thinking if we can find the right set of solutions or we build a sort of change people's minds or we all start agreeing on programs and so on, we can kind of solve these problems. And I'm realizing more and more we can't solve them. What we can do is change the initial conditions, the way people think. And then we have a whole, we can't predict the future. We have a whole series of sort of possible pathways that come from that. So in a way, I've stopped being quite so evangelical about solutions as such, but got more interested in trying to think differently and thinking about the natural world and how we take, you know, resources from that, how we live in harmony, that is part of part of that thinking. That's not as clear as I was hoping to say it, but that 
that's that was my starting point when I started working with with Lenny on this. <laughs> it's pretty bloody bleak, isn't it? <laughs> I well, well, is it sure, bleak? Andy, when you're when you're when you're knocking together a gallows, yeah, uh, for me, um, just yeah. be sparing with the amount of timber you use in it. Okay, yeah. Well, I'm very pleased <laughs> it's better that you... to use a stand, an existing tree now rather than to. It's interesting you say it's bleak. Because I don't think it is any more bleak than I ever. Well, are you saying it's bleak because I don't believe there is, there are solutions that will solve the problem and take us back to where we were? I think what I'm saying is there will inevitably be change. The scale of the changes we've set in motion are so vast. They've been we've been doing this for decades, hundreds of years actually. So it's not like it's just suddenly started. We go, oh, whoops, we made a mistake. Let's fix it. It's happening. It's changing. It's been changing for hundreds of years, and we've been changing the planet for thousands of years. I know. We're continuing to do I, that. So, and you're so, right. And I'm not. I don't mean to castigate you. I'm not. Uh, yeah. It's just um, hearing it when you hear uh, all the cute animals are dying, all the flowers are dying, and uh, you know, and there's no hope. <laughs> I well, wasn't. So I wasn't that. <laughs> I would say that the, if you go back to the article that we're discussing, the very next point that came up after talking about the biodiversity crisis, that one of the best responses that we have is not to say, oh, we're just going to change everything from building out of concrete and steel to building out of wood, but that the answer to all of this is to reduce the amount of everything that we use, to use less stuff, because you then go into that wonderful World Green Building Council chart of the carbon reduction curve, which changed the way you think about buildings in that the very first thing you have to do is decide, should we just build nothing? The very next thing is to build less, to maximize existing assets, to optimize asset operation. And then finally, to the next step is to build clever which is something that architects have not been good at. Architects are very good at laying on the trowel and making more bumps and more jogs and bigger buildings and taller buildings. And in the mass timber industry, I've even seen this mindless competition to be the tallest mass timber building going. And of course, the taller they go, the more fiber that goes into it and the more ridiculous they get. I mean, there was an architect uh, quoted in The uh, Guardian a few years ago basically said that you know anything you build below two stories isn't dense enough anything you build over five stories uses too much fiber and is the wrong thing to do and again in the article you showed that chart that wonderful chart that showed that hey you know low stories no, no under five stories you can do light t timber framing and as soon as you go <clears throat> into cross laminated timber and mass timber you're using five times as much fiber for the same square meter but the question is, why are people thinking like this and behaving like this? And if you if you conceive of, uh, you know, the world as providing an infinite, infinite re resources and whether that's, you know, digging stuff up or just, oh, we just plant more trees and therefore we've got. Yeah, or chopping more trees. Yes. It's clearly a wrong, wrong headed attitude because we don't see the limits. Now, what are the limits? You could say you talk to a forester and you talk to a conservationist, you know, we should more carbon is stored in old growth forests, leave them alone. Oh, no, let's, you know, plant more forests and displace cropland and so on. Clearly, as you've written about and, and we've written about in the articles, it is very, very complicated, but we have to act in, in simple ways. So one of the 
themes of the article, strong theme, was as getting people to try to understand that there are limits that should affect their behaviour, which is why I particularly felt strongly we should be saying something about capitalism or markets, you know, that we don't take a solution building in wood, whether it's high density, low density, whatever, and then just sort of look to sell that solution and grow that product, grow that business infinitely. So what what's the limit? And, what, and one of the boldest things we've said in there, which doesn't tend to get picked up that much, is this idea of leave 50% of the planet for nature, which is, of course, a suggestion that came out of the ecologist E.O. Wilson. And I don't know, Lenny, whether you found people picked that issue out because it's a you know it's almost like a, a throwaway in the article but it's hugely important because that sets the limit doesn't it? it it suggests that what we're thinking is we need to leave an awful lot of land cultivated where we don't extract stuff from it to well, give us ecosystem resilience you know but that ship has sailed hasn't it i mean we're way past half earth now aren't we and we are of course we are of course and there was some interesting research that was done at uh, as a follow-up to E.O. Wilson's half-earth proposal, suggesting that actually to actually achieve it would involve or could involve a lot of displacement of people and things like that, depending on how it was done. But I still think the half-earth suggestion was based on, you know, sound science. It was what I think the calculation was that half of the earth for nature would preserve something like 85% of the species. It wasn't, it wasn't just an arbitrary figure. It was about preserving ecological <coughs> Integrity. And to go back to kind of what you were asking me a few minutes ago, Lloyd, about, you know, mass timber, if it's using certified wood from, you know, well-managed forests in Europe, you know, it's not driving the biodiversity crisis. And that's that's true. It's not that's not one of the main drivers of the, of the biodiversity crisis. But if we are to live on a planet where, you know, we want to restore nature, where we want to protect what we have and restore it to levels where it, it can function at that sort of level, it means being as sparing as possible with 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 how we use land and with trying to provide for our needs with with as few with as few resources as 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 we can and and so the question that I was wondering when we started this article was well you know mass timber came in vogue and it seemed to just be being described in a way that as if it was just sort of replacing concrete and steel in the same sort of hyper capitalist expansionist mindset. Um, so it was just essentially being promoted as a sort of techno fix, albeit kind of one using an old fashioned material in the form of wood. And that was one of the things I think we wanted to question a bit. I remember when, when there was an early draft of the article uh, had been had been put together. You, the pair of you, Andy and Lenny, I think you circulated it to a few heads in the industry, you know, uh, to, to gain their thoughts on it. And it blew up. Because people have a tendency to think about these things in really quite simplistic terms and miss the nuance. And the immediate thing that that some people who I'd like to think should know better thought was that they're having a go at timber. And uh, it was just it was it was really it was a really interesting little reminder uh, that, you know, even smart people have the ability to kind of to massively oversimplify or be mis or, or reach a reach a. Uh, uh, the wrong conclusion too quickly. To me, it speaks to this kind of. It reminds me of this um, this need to be really careful. And when you're when you're dealing with a nuanced, tricky subject like this, um, uh, you 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 try and do everything you can to stop people getting the wrong end of the stick and and taking it out of context. Very difficult, you know. We had we had a, a sort of similar reaction many years ago when we um, commissioned an article. 
Alan Clark and Nick Grant called um, Biomass a Burning Issue. I think that's what it was called. And it was it was basically drawing people's attention to the uh, the issues around burning firewood and claiming it's carbon neutral. You know, when we discuss health, we discuss where do you draw the boundary? You know, if, if you're saying it makes sense to burn wood, you've drawn a boundary around a very small part of the of the of the of the world you know what does it look like if you increase that boundary and it suddenly changes your perspective and and it evoked those similar powerful emotions which you get from people who love using timber i've used timber all my life you know from age 17 onwards and i understand i've also loved fires but we didn't put a fire in our passive house because i changed my mind about it but yeah there's an emotional power when people talk about materials, which probably explains why it tends to get more traction in conversations than operational energy, you know, energy efficiency. Right. <laughs> well, one of the things I wanted to do when I was in the UK in the spring was speak to a lot of people to try, uh, especially because there are so many people working with uh, timber there and have been doing it for a while, you know, how much carbon is actually stored what is the carbon balance of building with wood? And nobody could tell me. And I came back to Canada and I spoke to Peter Moonen, a wood expert here, and he said, nobody ever will be able to tell you because it's different for every forest. It's different for every tree. Is it a deep root? Is it a shallow root? It depends on humidity. It depends on so many different conditions that nobody will ever be able to give you a definitive answer. And if they do give you it, it'll probably be wrong. And so here we are in a situation that uh, we know it's better than building out of steel and concrete. As another expert told me, if you don't grow it, you're mining it. And so this is better, but it's still not a panacea. It still doesn't eliminate as we uh, embodied carbon issue, which is the next thing you get into in your article, the discussion of embodied carbon. I have a book coming out in the spring called The Story of Upfront Carbon, which I think is a better name than embodied carbon because it's not embodied, it's in the atmosphere. But uh, three years ago, you're using that term, embodied carbon, fine. And you then get into the discussion of how we have to basically stop using so much of everything with my favorite word, sufficiency. And my whole book is about sufficiency, and my last book was about sufficiency. So I want to switch to the art of the issue of sufficiency here. And again, you start right off saying in the article, before building something, we should start to ask if it is really needed. What and I like about words is they're little packages of concepts, and you can start yes. to apart. So sufficiency. Do you think sufficiency is a an absolute term? Or is it a relative term like poverty is absolute and relative? Because somebody's concept of sufficiency, when they're surrounded by billionaires, you know, all their billionaire mates, their concepts of sufficiency is going to be really quite different to, I don't know, an ascetic living on a distant island, uh, out, you know, in Scotland somewhere. I only need five jacuzzis, exactly, yeah. yeah. Well, that, that does speak to something quite specific, like are you – are you looking at this from the perspective of a, a, a socialist or a capitalist? If you look at our prevailing social, political, and economic systems, so the half-earth idea that you referred to before, beautiful idea. But like you were right to point to it as perhaps being the most challenging concept in the whole article because it puts a cap on capitalism. Because yes. capitalism needs that, you know, since the Enlightenment, it has 
depended on 4%, 3 to 4% compound growth. And it can't function without that. Hence the, the development of frontiers and empire and whatever. It always has to have somewhere to grow. So the moment you say, nah, no more. Like, so where you're talking about sufficiency, within that political and economic system, the need for perpetual growth, that is a quality of sufficiency. You have to uproot, if you pardon the pun, I didn't intend to go there, these core ideas in order to create something that's going to work with sufficiency. And I'm not suggesting we have to become socialists or Marxists. I'm just saying, as you've said plenty of times, we just have to think differently. And there are lots of ways. You just have to look at yesterday's Guardian, where the whole new Oxfam uh, study was released that showed that the top 1%, not even the top 10%, the top 1% of put out as much carbon as the bottom half of the entire world. You know, so sufficiency, it got back to this. I can't pronounce it. My wife was trying to coach me upstairs. Satiety. You say it for me. Satiety. Yes. Satiated. Satiety. Satiated. Satiety. Yes. How much shit do people need, basically? (laughs) And here we get into the question of degrowth, which we're going away from all of this. Before we go into that, before we go to degrowth, I think this concept of sufficiency needs a little bit more looking at, doesn't it? Okay. So, well, I think it's it's just, just discussing the aspects where, you know, is it something that's voluntary? Is it something that's going to be imposed or might be imposed? You know, is it is it is it meaningful? Is it because I I certainly thought it was meaningful and useful in the article. I'm just slightly when you start to apply it practically, like you know you're you're you, you sort of try and sell that concept to your client. There's a moral overtone to it, a moralistic overtone. You know, this should be you should be sufficient with this, and it's going to be a different conversation with. I don't think it's too problematic, actually. I think I think they do catch on. Um, I took a. It's it's a, this is a tiny baby step now, but one thing that that I take as an indication of this. Most of you will be familiar with the RIBA or RIBA or whatever you call them, um, having a document a couple of years ago called the 2030 Climate Challenge, and within that they set, for instance, an embodied carbon target for dwellings of 625 kilos of CO2 equivalent uh, per square meter, whatever that means. Um, uh, as you figure like that out of context is completely meaningless. Um, and the RIAI, and yes, we still have a Royal Institute 100 years after independence. Uh, there you go. Um, uh, but they, to their credit, realized that they should pull their finger out too. So they they basically did a copy and paste job on the REBA document, and they called it the RIAI 2030 Climate Challenge. But they made some changes thanks to people like Pat Barry from the Irish Green Building Council, for instance, being on on their uh, on their sustainability task force. There's a, a number of other good eggs there, and, and one of them is they still have that 625 kilos target for dwellings. But if you're over 133 square meters, uh, the target reduces to 450. Either either if you either if you're over 133 square meters or if you're a low density low rise too. So uh, you know. That's a little indicator. It's a, it's not probably perfectly expressed, but it's an indicator that there is a willingness to start to 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 address these issues. And it's not too bloody much to ask. For God's sake, you know this is not hard. You know. So so does that mean does that mean that um you know so if the one percent? What did you say, uh, Lloyd? You said the the top one percent emit as much carbon as the bottom bottom fifty percent. Yeah. So if the one percent 
demonstrate or lead by example with sufficiency, even if it's relative to their peers, because that's a valuable thing to to reduce their emissions by you know a percentage. Then would is this there's an aspirational power in the world, isn't there? You know, I yes. Tanzania and and Pakistan and 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 seeing capitalism ripping through their you know fossil fuel powered capitalism. I presume everybody is just, you know, following that that dream of, of, of being able to get a better life. Yes. And then more and then more. That's uh, the beginning of that process. So um, and there are people aspiring to a, to a model, to a dream. So what importance do you put on demonstrate wealthy people demonstrating uh, sufficiency? Even if they it's never, the problem is they never do. I mean, they rejoice in their private jets and <laughs> their big cars, and it's a huge problem. And you know, it won't be enough to have people do it voluntarily as much as I wish it would. And I keep writing books about it. There was a Finnish study that was written in, tw- in 2020, the sufficiency perspective in climate policy, which basically talked about levels of different things to encourage or sufficiency. And there were different categories. There were regulatory ones, such as banning high carbon options and regulating advertising. There were economic ones like carbon taxes and removal of subsidies on high carbon options. And what we're talking about, which is nudging, sort of making low carbon choices more accessible or the default framing, choosing what perspective an issue is viewed. And that these were that we weren't going to be able to do sufficiency unless we actually regulated it. So you, uh, you think, so what people here seem to be saying, Jeff, you seem to be suggesting this as well, that voluntary sufficiency, you know, people adopting it on a voluntary as, as a fashionable thing or a moralistic thing, is going to be more about regulation adopting the principle. And then that has to be seen to be fair by applying you know, to all classes, the billionaire, millionaire classes, as well as the, you know, the rest of us. Yeah. Well, I I shouldn't, I would never say exactly that because I've written two books that say that are all about personal responsibility and making changes in your own lives. But um, the Finnish study was very persuasive that people are not going to do it in their own. Well, this is a question of the need for systemic change. I mean, uh, as much as I, I laud you for your book writing, Lloyd, and all of your advice, individual changes at that level, they're not going to make a blind bit of difference if you don't fix the systemic issues. You know, it's pissing in the wind. Is it? Is that true? true? Is that true, though? I mean, Lloyd, I thought you were just basically saying you need to change at all levels. I mean, personal well, yeah. change is a ripple effect into the culture. It's it's slow, but it, it does right. make effect change. Hear me out. Like the 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 idea I've been toying with for a long time now is the the climate change debate, such as it is, is more akin to abolition than anything else. For hundreds of years, everyone knew the slavery industry was wrong. The industrialized slave industry, which was distinctly different from that used by the Arabs or the Africans or the Romans or the, the Asians, like wherever. There's always been a, a hint of slavery about all cultures and all civilizations. It were never industrialized into the triangle. People never invented a whole new form of philosophy and categorization of people to, to, to bolster it because it was industrialized. 
in uh, America and um, in the UK, particularly in places like Manchester, there were protests and boycotts in relation to slavery. People campaigned against it, much like the sorts of protests that we are witnessing around us now. There is a heinous act being committed. People are aware of it and people protest. But the systemic aspect, the, the political powers, will, the economic powers, the, the will to exercise, it's just not willing to make the change like with abolition what we ended up having to do was pay all the fuckers off yeah yeah like and if you look at the the carbon industry if you like the fossil fuel industry it cannot exist without subsidy whether you're talking about exploiting the the north sea fields or the tar sands in north america it cannot exist without subsidy like or without uh, political and economic power being exercised about against people who might seek to inhibit it. Mm. And we all carry the cost of that already. So I wonder, given that it's an existential threat for all of us, not just the people of the continent of Africa now, like, can we not just pay the fuckers off? What do they want? Because they're holding us to ransom. Like they've got... It's not a gun to our heads. It's something much, much worse. Mm. This is worse than some bikini atoll moves. Like it's, it's everyone. <laughs> At least Chernobyl only fucked that part of I don't know Europe, Asia. I don't know quite where it it, it counts. Can I? So can I just declare? So you're suggesting can we pay off the fossil fuel? Companies to just stop what they're doing? Essentially, like how much yeah. would it cost I mean, to get them yeah. to wind down? It's 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 it, it's not a bad oh, idea. Yeah. <laughs> like because everyone knows it's wrong. There there are recorded examples of people talking about carbon carbon dioxide driven climate change back in the late eighteen hundreds or the early nineteen hundreds. I can't remember which. There's one of them articles. I just believe yeah. it to be true. It might be false. I don't know. I've never looked I, into it that hard. No, people true. have known for decades, yeah. best part of a century, that this shit's happening. And whilst you can argue the toss about the specifics of it, like industrialized driven climate change is there. We've been able to monitor it. We've seen it. But in much the same way as the the rights and wrongs of the slavery trade were debated endlessly, we've had the same we've had the same fixings here. But you'd have to pay off more than just the fossil fuel industries because there's far more people involved nowadays we don't have to go on holiday to buy it to but i think what what, what 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 this is what, you know this personal action that there is a role for everybody to yeah. act at all different levels because it is all connected and i i do kind of agree with you actually dan i think you you're right to have said what you you said there um but change happens in this you know pressure builds up and solutions are you know are found and if it's paying in in the example you gave paying off the slave owners you know that was a solution to pressure building up among other things wasn't it so it takes yeah. everybody and at the same time like i said about the predicament we're in a predicament we have to respond to it and we have to think about now the transition is a real bloody difficult bit because once we're the other side you know and we've got our skills in understanding lifetime carbon we've got our new timber building skills or our low embodied carbon you know decarbonized materials building skills and we found ways to make a living out of doing less all the things we're promoting 
that's that's something to look forward to but the transition that is you know that's do you see any kind of great i mean you've shown some examples of people starting to make a living by you know living and working in this way I'd like to jump in on, on what Dan was saying and say, you know, the problem is who are the fuckers to pay off? If you look where 80% of the oil comes from, it's national entities. It's not companies like Shell or Exxon, even though they're the ones that we're all uh, blocking up. It's like Saudi Arabia and uh, Iran and all of the co their countries that are producing it. And you can't pay off Saudi Arabia. It's got all the money. And you know this so fundamentally we have to look at what andy was saying and which we saw during the pandemic that we have to stop buying what they're selling and in the pandemic when we were forced to stop buying what they were selling because we couldn't drive and we couldn't fly and we couldn't do that they all had to get bailed out all the all the fracking companies were going broke all the oil companies were getting bailed out by the government if we don't buy then they have nothing to sell and reducing demand is going to be the only way to deal with them you can't go to say to the supply we'll shut we'll buy you out we have to basically make them die because they don't have any buying their stuff anymore i do that's why that's why they're pivoting to plastic so much because they're realizing as the world electrifies they're going to have to figure out what to do with their oil which is why they're investing billions in new plastics plants but they know are, this there are big there are big commercial entities moving into the area of decarbonized building materials and so there is going to be a process where the larger companies which may be the, the less ethical companies well like they are less ethical companies you know they're not the small mom and pop kind of entities that maybe we we prefer to buy our building materials off but they're increasingly starting to buy up you know wood fiber companies you know insulation companies and and clearly that's going to happen because they can see the writing on the wall the other side of hubbard's peak and now that is based on big companies with a business model growth model and that's where again Lenny and I were you know trying to look in the article at what happens if you turn the machine away from oil you know oil derived products and turn the machine onto natural you know ecosystems well i think you raised something quite important there because it, i mean this goes back to where we started earlier and when you began to introduce the specter of degrowth the the idea that we have to think about these things quite differently like when I say quite differently, I mean a lot differently, like massively, almost incomprehensibly, mm. because of how we've been inculcated in these perspectives up to this point. So degrowth is a misnomer. Or oh, sorry, it could be a misnomer. If your only metrics for growth or value are based on GDP, you are excluding an awful lot of value that is created within an economy. So unpaid labor, the the home labor, like the stuff women do. <laughs> that, right. That's what it comes down to. Like we devalue women. Now, if there was a way to start to value that, to factor the productivity of people who have hitherto gone unpaid or unacknowledged, then you begin to transform things ma massively. And given that, Growth in terms of financial growth is just shuffling decimal points on spreadsheets. Like if you look at the nature of fractional reserve banking, it is like it's the one good idea. Uh, what's it? 
your man, the the Homo sapiens fella, the sapiens fella, Yuval yeah, Noah yeah. Harari. Is that, yeah. is that like you have one good idea? It's that people tell stories and you can build myths on top of them. They give you really strong foundations to do incomprehensibly massive things. Money, for instance. Like fractional reserve banking, if you factored wealth like if you created wealth like that, if you ascribed financial value, you can shuffle you can shuffle values and decimal points and numbers around a spreadsheet in a consumer economy. You just change the things that you're consuming from goods to services. Yeah. The problem is capitalism based on frontier, imperialism, and colonialism and latterly industrialization have always depended on extractive methods to create value and growth. Sorry, Jeff. No, I think uh, it just keeps on coming to my head. There's a there's a joke by the old uh, English uh, comedian Tommy Cooper, um, where he talks about, um, I don't know if you got him, Lloyd, in, uh, in, in Canada. Uh, Never he, heard of him. He's worth checking out. Very strange 1970s comedian who famously died live on, on TV. Uh, died on stage a uh, shambling kind of magician was one of the main kind of characters but he had this joke where he's like uh, uh, what is it now i went to the doctor and i uh, said uh my arm hurts when i go like that he said well don't do it and that's <laughs> basically <laughs> and i think for me that's it that is really uh in in a few words what we need to do basically you know just stop it just stop doing things you know yeah sit there with your thoughts for a minute and uh, and think of what you've done you know, <laughs> it's a lot to unwind, though, isn't it? Yeah, I think we should get back to the article for a minute and look <laughs> at some of these other words and concepts that were discussed, because they're really critical. I was thrilled when I read it to find the point number two was simplicity. I've written a lot about simplicity. I learned about it from Nick Grant, who was writing about his concept of radical simplicity and that basically was showing that you could, for instance, build passive house for less money than most people are building regular buildings, just if you stripped out all of the stupid things we do in regular buildings, every jog, every window that's too big, and you made basically simple things. And simplicity I, I think what it's important and what I tried to do in my new book is to point out that all of these principles apply to everything in life, not just buildings. That simplicity, when you think about cars, you know, my mother's Toyota Echo that I drove for 10 years after she lost her license, it had crank windows. Whatever happened? Why did we get rid of the simpler things like that? It... um Everything has gotten more complicated, more expensive, more difficult, and bigger. Whereas if you get back to the basics of simplicity, of defeaturing, which is a term from Carlos Ghosn's principle of frugality, defeaturing and simplicity and building robustly, these are all things that we've lost and we lose sight of this word simplicity in buildings in north america where they all picked up on new urbanism and they all said oh every building's got to have lots of different materials and it's what i call sample board modern you look at it and there might be uh someone said a british a british uh, thought it was like sesame street seven seven i count seven materials let's <laughs> count all the materials and we've lost this concept of simplicity that i thought 
it was very, very brave of you to raise, and I often get it confused with sufficiency, but it's a very different thing. Yeah. Do you have more thoughts on simplicity? Simplicity, when I think of simplicity, because obviously it overlaps with these other concepts, and also you can deconstruct it, and then maybe it's not quite so straightforward, but um, I did a I think it was architecture college. I did my thesis on uh, alternative communities in the 1800s. Uh, and I looked at the Shakers in America. And I don't know how familiar you are with them, but they had a, a very sophisticated approach, I thought, to uh, making everyday items. And they were in pursuit of, you know, simplicity, as you've, you've described it. And they're both beautiful and very uh, effective, you know, at doing what they're meant to do and very efficient in terms of their materials. And it took quite a lot of hard work to get there, but beautiful examples of, of simplicity. And practical. They were Their work was so practical. You know, they wouldn't have a chair filling up a space in a room. They had special pegs. You could pick up the chair and you could hang it in the wall and therefore use the space for other uses, which is another word I use in my book, which is flexibility. They're able to build less and build smaller because they designed everything to be flexible. The Shakers are a great example. But they they also there were very real reasons why they had to do that. I'm not quite sure what was going on outside the Shaker communities at the time, but I suspect there was a sort of the beginnings of that sort of you know endless wealth. We can you know we've got huge amounts of timber, so let's use lots of it. Whereas the Shakers were very uh, like their boxes, you know, very thin pieces of timber used steam bent into boxes. So I know their religious values sort of. In, were interpreted into this thinking, but I think there were very real uh, resource reasons, maybe uh, a sort of, you know, the self-imposed sort of, not I was going to say pure ascetic kind of lifestyles. But what was the example you, you used um, of the car design? Because didn't that sort of thinking come out of India, where again, there were very real... Yes, it came out, the frugality came out of India, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So there are very real reasons why that happens. Whereas in our in our society, what you know, we don't currently really have resource restraints, constraints. Well, I mean, they're, they're, they're growing, but we don't have them. So how can simplicity kind of come out of such a, a sort of culture with, you know, any material you want and any quantity when you want it? I think you used the iPhone as an example of simplicity, but it's actually it looks you know, superficially it looks simple, but it's actually hugely complex. Nick Nick talk, uses an example, um, and he talks about this in the context of value engineering and reclaiming the term value engineering. And it's unfortunate in that you could think of lower embodied carbon examples in this. Um, it, it does offer a, a fairly significant embodied carbon reduction on the conventional approach, and it is the insulated foundation system. So, uh, yes, a tub of petrochemical-based insulation, so that's not great. And then you've got a reinforced concrete sitting within that tub, so again, that's not great. But you tend to use an awful lot less concrete with this approach than you would with the conventional foundation system. Um, but basically, you've got the insulation, the concrete, and then if you polish it, that's it. Mm. It's two materials, you know, and yeah. it's beautiful. It's very long-lasting and uh very high performance because in terms of insulation because you've got you you have to have continuous insulation or else you've got concrete pissing out everywhere you know um i mean that is a very good example of everything working very hard to do multiple you know to satisfy multiple uses but when you work we've just got a client to accept one of those floor constructions actually uh second polished concrete floor slab 
people have got you know thousands of options haven't they in, in this country any number of products that you have to sift through and they're throwing oh we've been told this and this is low carbon and this is you know i i do yearn for a much simpler set of uh, a much simpler palette for designing buildings just to cut out the incredible kind of time spent in getting away from the actual architecture and the embodied carbon and the you know the actual sort of ecological design side of things and sifting through endless products drives me mad the word that you spend a lot of time on uh in the article is efficiency but you're not talking about efficiency as most people use it as sort of operating efficiency you're talking about essentially a design efficiency, right? Where you're saying use only take what you need. And so you're talking about using materials efficiently. And then you get through talking about, again, cross-laminated timber for buildings. And you have the quote, for buildings up to six stories, CLT uses substantially more timber to achieve the same function as a light timber frame building, which is something I said earlier, which is very, very important. And the message is getting through. We talked hmm. about um, when I interviewed Andrew Waugh, the prominent architect uh, who builds a great deal of wood a couple of years ago, about five years ago, and first mentioned to him, you're using so much wood and people are saying, look, I used all this wood. I'm storing all this carbon. That's a good thing. And I said, no, it's not a good thing. I see you're only saving half the tree. Only half of it gets sequestered. And his flip answer at the time six years ago was, well, then we'll just plant two trees. And of course, that doesn't work. But when I saw Andrew in the spring and went into his fabulous new black and white building, Clearly, thinking had changed, and he very, very proudly was saying, look at the size of these columns. We're using 40% as much fiber per square meter as we did in our buildings 10 years ago. That suddenly, they are nobody is saying anymore, we'll just plant more trees. Uh, they're saying, hey, even when we're building with mass timber, we have to use less. And I'm just going to jump to another word that you use, which is honesty. And this is the problem that we're having right now. I reviewed a building by a very, very prominent green architect, green capitalized architect in the United States that I, I was shocked that they did this. But what they did is they were building a building, had a massive, massive parking garage, concrete parking garage, and they designed it for flexibility with giant columns and giant beams so they could do a big span in mass timber. And mass timber doesn't want to have big spans, Ooh. but they were going for, you know, 30 feet. I'm sorry, I can't, I was talking American there, <laughs> 30 feet. Uh, spans, which is big for mass timber. And what they did is they said the building was carbon positive. And I said, why is this building carbon positive? I said, well, we're storing X amount of carbon in these massive beams, you know, because there's so much, they're storing more carbon. And we could have built it out of concrete, but we avoided that. And so they included the avoided carbon as something that they could add together with the stored carbon and say, look at this, this building is carbon positive, even though it's sitting on four layer, four levels of concrete parking garage. Wow, that, that is audacious. It was audacious. <laughs> and when you look now, I was talking to an English firm, Preoptima, that does carbon analysis, and they put out an article that there are different scopes of carbon. And uh, there's scope three, which is us consumption, and scope one, when you're making something. And they wanted to add a scope four, which is avoided carbon. <laughs> 
and say, this should now be part of the calculations. Look at all the carbon we're avoiding by not building out of concrete. And I say, no, this is insane. We can't do this. This is like being on a diet and I get to credit myself for the chocolate cake I didn't eat. The world is held together by creative accountancy, isn't it? <laughs> well, not held together. The world is full of creative accountancy. It's lubricated. It's being ruined by creative accountancy. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that we have to, we have to be honest about what we're doing. And one of the things I find most, about, particularly about mass timber, is nobody's being honest, or at least some people are not being honest. And that's where your efficiency comes in. Uh, we have to look at again how how efficiently can we do it there was a wonderful study that came out again i think last year since by hans gouch and they basically constructed this model this computer model with all these different knobs building size building height building frame proportion of window to wall all of these things and they came up and say you know buildings want to be boxy they want to be short they want to be built out of wood and they want to have little windows and if we all designed these simple buildings like this, then we could probably get away with half the amount of carbon emissions that we have now. And it was just obvious. I think 